Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. In case you are wondering, uh, Randall Caps was up here because he was the chairman of the search committee that called me here 15 years ago. Uh, then about five or so years ago, maybe a little longer or less, he uh, wanted to keep better tabs on me, so he moved into my neighborhood, uh, <laughs> sort of diagonally behind me, but that wasn't even enough. He talked my diagonal back, back door neighbors into cutting down all of their tall trees so that he could have a better sight line to the back of my house, and so now he knows everything that's going on there. But I do appreciate uh, you doing that this morning. It has been a good 15 years. I uh, hope we have many more years, maybe not 15 more, but uh, more anyway, because 15 more would put me, uh, well, it'd put me on up there a bit. (laughs) There are a number of verses in the Bible, many of them penned by the Apostle Paul that are well known to us and famous verses, some that you know, others that perhaps you may have memorized. One such verse is Romans 8, 28 where Paul writes, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Not only is that verse famous, but that entire section of Romans is famous because the remainder of chapter 8 goes on to talk about how nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And my question in beginning this morning is not, do you know that verse? But my question is, do you believe that verse? Do you really believe that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose? Now, just to clarify, he does not say that all things are good. But he does say that God can work out of anything good for us and for his glory. This means that even in pain and suffering, even in the midst of trials and tribulations, that God is using them for a purpose, and that purpose is for our good. Now, we don't always believe that, especially when things are not going well in our life. As evidenced by the fact that when we are in the midst of pain or suffering, we sometimes wonder where God is and question whether or not He loves us and has forsaken us. When there is heartache or death or suffering, where has God gone? That is why one of the biggest questions of our faith is why does a good and loving God allow his children to suffer in this life? If he can prevent it, why doesn't he? If he loves us as much as the Bible says he does, and we've already sung about this morning, then why doesn't he prevent suffering? Or is it even more complicated than that? Is it not only that God allows suffering, but could he actually be orchestrating suffering in our life? Bringing it about intentionally so that we can learn from it and grow and trust him more fully? Well, we're not going to answer all of those questions nor those concerns, but I I do hope to at least come to the conclusion that Romans 8.28 is indeed true. 
And as a result, by faith, we can trust, no matter what's going on in our life, we can trust that God has a purpose and a plan and is working that out. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, I thought this was an Old Testament series called Ancient Encounters. And I'm glad you remembered that, or at least saw the cover of your bulletin. It is an Old Testament series, but the reason I started with Romans 8.28 is because we're going to look at a man this morning who believed Romans 8.28. Long before Paul ever wrote it, this man believed wholeheartedly that God had a purpose for his life, and that purpose was for good even in the midst of suffering. His name is Joseph. When we talk about suffering, we tend to associate that with Job, and rightfully so, and we'll look at Job in this series. But Joseph had his fair share or more of suffering as well. Now, Joseph's encounter with God is not going to be a one-time event. It is not going to be a dramatic revelation from God. Instead, in the life of Joseph, what we're going to find is a lifetime encounter. Here is a man who is walking with God and... The text we're looking at today in Genesis chapter 50, he is at the end of that walk, the end of his life, and he's looking back over his life, reflecting on the fact that God has had a hand in everything that has transpired. Last week, we talked about God's faithfulness to our father from our father Abraham. Today, we are going to look at God's providence in the life of Joseph who just happens to be the great-grandson of Abraham. Genesis chapter 50 and verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, I want to begin by looking at God's providence through pain. That is, through the suffering that we are going to see in the life of Joseph. Verses 19 and 20 are really the theme verses of Joseph's life, and you can see how easily they compare to Romans 8, 28. 
But before we get there, I probably need to say a little bit about what I mean by the word providence. The word providence does not actually occur in most English translations of the Bible in reference to God, though the idea certainly does. It's a word that actually comes from the word provide, and that word provide has two parts. It means to see forward. Now, if I might go back to Abraham just for a few moments this morning, you remember I mentioned that time in his life where God had called him to sacrifice the son of the promise, Isaac. And Abraham was willing to do that, and they are on the way to the place where that sacrifice is going to occur. And Isaac looks and says to Abraham, You've got everything necessary for the sacrifice except the sacrifice itself. And most translations there say that Abraham answered his son by saying, the Lord will provide. But that word provide is really the word to see. In English, we have phrases like, I'll see to it. I'll see that that happens. So providence is God seeing, but not just visually. It is God seeing to the point that he is going to act upon it. That is, whatever the situation is, he is going to see that it happens according to his plan. A basic definition of God's providence is this. The act of purposely providing for or sustaining and governing the world. All of the major Christian confessions throughout the years have said something about the providence of God. I won't recount all of those to you, but I will read one. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith where it says, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all of his creation, ordering them and all of their actions to his own glory. Now, if you want to learn more about God's providence, you can pick up John Piper's latest little book, it's simply called Providence. It is a mere 701 pages in length. I've only read the first chapter, and that's where that information of providence came from. Now, with that as a definition, some might conclude that life is meaningless. It's all a matter of faith. Whatever it is, must be. But providence is not the same as fate. Providence says that whatever God ordains must be, and we know that what God ordains has a purpose behind it. And as we'll see in a few moments, that is compatible with moral responsibility. So it is not whatever is must be, but it is whatever God says must be. Well, let's get back to the life of Joseph for just a moment. And I said that this is a lifetime encounter, which means... We are at the end of his life, and therefore we are going to have to look at least briefly at some of the events of the life of Joseph that has brought him to this point. So when you think of Joseph, you think back to those Sunday school lessons that you learned as a child, what is it that comes to mind with Joseph? Is it that teenager who has a dream that one day all of his family is going to bow down to him and foolishly tells that dream to his brothers? If you want to pull a, a moral lesson out of that part of Joseph's life, it is this. Do not tell your dreams to others. They don't want to hear it, especially if the dream is about them. So if you find yourself saying, hey, I had a dream about you last night, remember Joseph and just stop. 
Or maybe when you think about the life of Joseph, you think about the coat of many colors that his father gave him. A coat that many scholars believe was a robe given to the one whom the father intended to lead the family. And as such, this kind of coat was normally given to the firstborn son, certainly not to the eleventh-born son. And so there is more going on in that story than just jealousy over a jacket that dad gave to one of his boys. Now, you know I occasionally try to work in some musical lyrics into my sermons, and generally speaking, because of what I listen to, those musical lyrics are from the country genre. I have to include this one, don't I? I mean, I have no choice. It just writes itself into the narrative. Our local hero, Dolly Parton. I tried to get her to come today to sing her coat of many colors for us, but either Aaron did not want her or she had other things to do. But in that song, as her mother is sewing the patchwork coat that she is giving to her daughter, she tells her the story from the Bible that she had read about a coat of many colors Joseph wore. And then she said, perhaps this coat will bring you good luck and happiness. Well, I do not mean to question Dolly Parton's biblical knowledge, but the coat did not bring Joseph good luck nor happiness. And if you know the song, it didn't much bring it to the little girl either. It brought her bullying at school. But Joseph did not find good luck from the coat. Instead, his brothers, jealous of him, decided that they were going to get rid of him, and they threw him into a pit, leaving him there, or that was their plan initially. But then they decided, why not gain something from this? And so they sell Joseph into slavery, and they take that coat, and they douse it in some blood of an animal and take it back to his father. And now his father believes that Joseph is dead at the hands of wild animals. Joseph winds up in Egypt, in Potiphar's house, And so maybe you remember that time when when he is uh, trying to avoid the advances of his boss's wife, and he flees the house, and that only winds him up in prison. His faithfulness in fleeing temptation in a foreign land has left him not free, but left him in prison and that for a number of years. Joseph could have found pleasure in that moment. He could have turned his back on God, but he did not. He was even forgotten by a fellow prisoner who promised to remember Joseph when Joseph correctly interpreted his dream and he was released. That's an awful lot of bad luck for the favored son of a patriarch. Years of suffering and abuse while all the time being faithful to God. And so in our text, he has come to the end of his life and he is not bitter. He is not angry, though we might say to ourselves he has every right to be. In fact, in chapter 45, there is a tearful reunion with his brothers. And in that reunion, he offers his forgiveness to them. But now, dad has died, and the guilty consciences of his brothers are still quite active. And so they think to themselves, now that our father is gone, Joseph is going to enact his revenge. Now, whether dad ever told them what they say he told them or not, we do not know. They certainly would not have been above lying. But Joseph's forgiveness was sincere, and Jacob's death has not changed that. But after all of that injustice, 
Remember, he's been a servant in Egypt the entirety of his adult life. As a teenager, late teenager, he was sold into slavery, and he has been there ever since. And after all of those years in prison, he still finds a way to forgive. How is that possible? The answer is God's providence. Joseph understands that in spite of all that has gone on in his life, he is right where God wants him to be. In fact, in the earlier reunion with his brothers, when he reveals himself to them, he said to them, God sent me before you to preserve life. And even in this text, verse, uh, or I'm sorry, back in that other text, verse, chapter 45, verse 8, he says, so it was not you who sent me here, but it was God. And that is still the story when we come to chapter 50. God meant all of this for good. He had a purpose. He had a plan in place. He had intended this all along. Now, we might be tempted to say, sure, Joseph has come to this conclusion now that he's late in life and he's looking back. Hindsight is indeed 2020. And so Joseph now in a place of prominence, we'll talk about that in a moment, but Joseph now in a place of prominence can look back over his life and say, now I see that God meant all of this for good. But I don't think that's fair. I think Joseph saw the hand of God's providence throughout his life, and that is what helped him to remain faithful in prison and faithful during temptation in a foreign land. That dream that he had was in part to prepare him for all that he was going to endure. And so throughout his life, he he knows that God has been directing him. Now, I mentioned earlier that God's providence does not conflict with man's responsibility. Joseph articulates this on at least two occasions. In the previous encounter, chapter 45, where he reveals himself to his brothers, he says to them, you sold me here. That's responsibility. That was their choice. That was their responsibility, or that was their decision. And therefore, it was their responsibility. Now, at the same time, he could say, God sent me here, but so did you. You sold me. And in this text, their motive is revealed. You meant evil against me. It was their sin that started this whole life of hardship for Joseph. So can God bring good out of suffering and sin? Joseph's testimony is absolutely he can and he does. Now that does not mean that we should sin and watch God work. It does not mean that we should jump into suffering as a badge of pride, though I don't think any of us are on the verge of doing that. But it does mean that we can trust in the midst of our pain and in the midst of our problems that God has a plan and God has a purpose. We may not know that in the moment. We may not even know that in the future. But we can trust that God has a purpose and a plan by faith. And isn't that the very definition of faith? That we believe even when our circumstances might tell us differently. So Joseph sees God's providence through pain. But that's not the end of the story. Secondly, we notice that God's providence through prominence. Because Joseph's story does not end in that pit. It does not end in the prison. Eventually, Joseph is raised to prominence in Egypt. And that journey to prominence starts two years after that fellow prisoner was released. Remember, Joseph interprets his dream, says, remember me. He gets out. The guy does not remember him. But two years later, Pharaoh has a dream. 
And this other servant says, now I remember. There was a man in prison, a Hebrew, and he can interpret dreams. So Joseph is summoned to interpret. He correctly tells Pharaoh that there is going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And Pharaoh says, well, who better than you to coordinate all of this? And so Joseph is put in charge of basically the economy of Egypt. It is his responsibility to gather the grain so that in the years of famine, they will have enough to distribute. All of this does come to pass, and eventually his brothers do come down to Egypt to buy grain. And through a series of events, Joseph finally reveals himself to them. And this leads to that reunion I talked about earlier and ultimately to the entire family at the invitation of Pharaoh moving down to Egypt and settling in the land so that Joseph is now reunited with his father and his brothers, including Benjamin. And so when we come to the end of his life, he is still in that place of prominence. He is still second in command in Egypt. We see this earlier in this chapter in the funeral procession for his father. His father had promised or made them him promise to take him back to the promised land. He didn't want to be buried in Egypt. And so Joseph is allowed to do that. And in fact, the leadership in Egypt go with him and mourn with him. Remember, he's still a servant. And again, he's lived his entire adult life in Egypt. But they are allowing him to leave now so that he might go bury his father. And they went with him out of great respect. Surely there's a part of it as well that they want to make sure he comes back. But I think they do respect and admire him. We talk occasionally about how people turn away from God during difficulties, blaming God for the situation that they find themselves in and because God did not help, knowing that God is powerful enough but has for some reason chosen not to. But sometimes it's the exact opposite. That is, people do turn to God during the midst of their difficulties and even bargain with God. God, if you'll get me out of this, I promise I'll be faithful once this is over with. And then if indeed God does get them out of that circumstance, whatever it might be, they tend to go back to the way they were living before they even went into that circumstance. This certainly includes times of prosperity or prominence for us. Financial prosperity, we tend to forget our need for God. Career advancements or political prestige these things can have a tendency to lead us away from God. Suddenly, we believe we're the ones that are in control. It's my smart decisions that have led me to the place I am in in life. You know, sometimes people will tell me after a sermon, and I don't mean this to have you say this afterwards, but sometimes people will say to me after a sermon, that was a good sermon. But then sometimes they will follow that up with this. Sometimes they will say, that was a good sermon, but... Don't get the big head. Why do they say that? Because it's easy to do just that. It is easy to allow our heads to grow in size and think that we are good at what we do because of our decisions and because of our choices and because of everything that we have done. And so we begin to applaud ourselves for arriving at a place of prominence in life. But we do not see that in the life of Joseph. He's the number two man in the country but he remembers who put him there, and he remembers why God put him there. Notice he states here that he has been put in this position for the good of others, to save others through this famine. 
And this includes the very brothers who betrayed him and their families, which again is certainly outward evidence that his forgiveness is genuine. So even in prominence, he realizes that he is there because of God and for the purposes of God. And likewise, we need to realize in times of blessings that our blessings from God are not just to bless us, but God is blessing us so that he might use us to be a blessing for others. I remind you that Joseph is not in ministry, as we might call it. His career at this point in his life, or really for the last number of years up until his death, is what we might call a mixture of politics and economics. He is the head of the agricultural department for Egypt, which on the surface does not sound very spiritual. But Joseph thinks it is. Joseph realizes that it is God who has put him in this position. There is no distinction in his mind between, between secular and sacred. So that God is at work in all of his children, putting them in just the right place for their good and for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. And so I want to ask you, do you look at your job in that way? Will you go to work tomorrow with the understanding that you are in the place of God? That does not mean that you will always be in that place. I simply mean that for now, God has put you where you are for his purposes and for a reason. It is not just a job. We didn't stumble into a career. God has put us where we are for his purposes and for our good. And that is equally true if you are a student or retired, which just might mean that if we understand all of that, we might change our attitude toward our circumstances in life and that everything we do will become more meaningful and more fruitful rather than meaningless. So we've seen two segments of Joseph's life. We've seen that he sees the hand of God's providence through his pain, and we've seen that he sees the hand of God's providence even in his prominence. But there's a third thing from the last verses we want to consider, and that is God's providence through promises. In this last section of Genesis, we read about the death of Joseph. Now, to this day, you know that deathbed words carry a lot of meaning. Something someone says as they are dying carries a lot of weight even in our court system. Those words are significant because it is believed that at this point in your life, as you know you are dying, there is no more reason to lie about anything, so you're going to tell the truth. And you just might tell something that's been on your heart and mind for a long time that you've just never voiced. And so at these times, these words are significant. So what is on the mind of Joseph as he is about to die? And the answer is the promise that God gave to Abraham, the promise that we looked at last week. Not the part about his descendants. That promise is already in motion. It's not complete, but it's already in motion. But the promise of the land, it's been roughly 200 years. Get that, 200 years since God initially gave that promise to Abraham. And yet, as Joseph lays dying, there is not one single descendant of Abraham who is living in the land that God had promised. Not one. They were all in Egypt due to the famine. And they don't know it at this point, but they're still going to be there for many years ahead. 
We know according to chapter 12 of Exodus that they lived in Egypt for 430 years. We do not know exactly when they transitioned from being servants or from being free and invited by Pharaoh to being slaves. But we do know that Joseph lived 70 years after his family came to Egypt, which means it's going to be another 360 years from Genesis chapter 50 when Joseph dies before Moses leads the people out in what we call the Exodus. That's an awful lot of time between promise and fulfillment, which makes it all the more amazing that they held on to this promise and believed. And so on his deathbed, Joseph is thinking about the promise. He is certain that God is going to bring it to pass, though he now has no idea how long into the future that is going to be. And he knows that he's not going to be a part of it, at least physically. He's not going to be alive for the fulfillment of the promise. Nevertheless, he is confident that it's going to happen. And so even as his father promised him that he would not bury him in Egypt, but would take him to the land and bury him there. So Joseph says something very similar. Do you know when you go to Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith, there is only one verse about Joseph. I said last week that Abraham had a pretty large section in Hebrews 11. Joseph, just one verse. You say, well, if you were to summarize the life of Joseph in one verse, what what would you say? By faith, Joseph lived in a foreign land, having been betrayed by his brothers. Or by faith, Joseph refused to succumb to the temptation of another man's wife, landing him in prison instead. By faith, Joseph continued to live faithfully for God in prison, even when forgotten by others and presumably by God. By faith, Joseph forgave his brothers and provided food for them and their families so that they might survive a famine. Hebrews chapter 11 mentions none of those things. Here's all it says. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. That's what the writer of Hebrews deemed to be the most important aspect of the life of Joseph. That's what he used to summarize the life of this man. That he remembered the promise, still believing it, and gave direction concerning his bones. You know, my family on my mother's side, and I hope they don't watch this, they are very concerned about the cemetery in which many in the family are buried. It's a small and rural church cemetery in North Georgia, and my portion of the family, not me, but my portion takes good care of their ancestors. They regularly replace the flowers and make sure that the graves are not sunken in, that there's enough dirt topped by rock so that it looks good. I was recently down there, and to be honest, it really is probably the nicest section of that cemetery because the vast majority of that little church cemetery is in much disarray. My mother, on the other hand, has a burial plot in another cemetery in town, the one in the city, but she doesn't know anybody around her. So she's not real sure she wants to be buried there. And so she's really considering at a late stage of her life that that she wants to be buried in the family cemetery at this little church. 
She was even offered a plot by some extended family that is literally directly behind her line of ancestors for free. She didn't take it because they don't take as good a care of those lots as my part of the family takes care of their lots. So recently I was down there and my mom said, bring a tape measure with you when you come. So we went out to this little cemetery and she had me measuring how much space there was between her mother and her grandmother to see if there was enough room to fit her, which was pretty awkward since she's right there with me as I'm measuring this plot. Not to mention the fact that I have no idea how much room it takes to bury someone. So I realize that people do care about where their bones are buried. I realize that people do think that's important, that they want to be around family, but, but Joseph's concern was not a family reason. Instead, he wanted to be part of God's providence through the promise that even if it was only his bones, that's what he was going to do. Even if he physically couldn't be part of it, his bones could. Now, did you notice how Genesis ends? Joseph died. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. There is no mention of a burial because there wasn't one. So over 300 years later, when Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus, we read these words. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel say, swearing... And then he quotes this verse that we've just read. And then if you fast forward even further to the second to last verse in the book of Joshua, when the people have finally conquered and are living in the land, we read these words. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people brought up from Egypt, they buried them in Shechem in a piece of land that Jacob bought. I know sometimes today we delay services a few days or a week or two because of the need to get family into town. I realize that during COVID, sometimes we have memorial services months after someone has passed away. But Joseph must hold the record for the length of time between death and burial because it's over 400 years or right at 400 years between the time he dies and the time they bury him. I wonder what they did with his coffin all of those years. I mean, was it sitting out there in Egypt for all to see? And when they were in the wilderness, those 40 years, was it being carted around in a cart by some animals? And you can just imagine that children are asking their parents, what in the world is that coffin about? Why are we going to all the trouble to hold that coffin around everywhere? And every time that question was asked, the parents had the opportunity to remind them again, oh, that's Joseph's bones. And about 400 years ago, he promised, or he made us promise, that we would take him with us to the promised land because he believed in God's providence through the promise. We've seen God's working in the life of Joseph in the past through pain, in the present in Genesis 50, I mean, through prominence, and then in the future through the promise. 
And I want you to understand the same can be said of your life and mine. God's providence is on your life in your past, in your present, and will be in your future. I want you to understand that Joseph is a picture of deliverance, pointing to the greater deliverance that would, that would come through the Son of God. Even as Joseph suffered before receiving glory, so we see the same in the life of Jesus. Even as Joseph was rejected before being accepted, so too we see it in the life of Jesus. Even as Joseph was humbled before he was exalted by God, so too we see that in the life of Jesus. Even as Joseph endured the lowest pit in this life before rising to the highest pinnacle, so too we see it in Jesus. At the cross, we witness the most innocent victim, the most intense suffering, the greatest injustice, the most hurtful betrayal, and the greatest physical and emotionally and even spiritual agony that could ever come to pass. And yet from all of these, we witness the greatest good ever accomplished, the salvation of men and women, previously separated from God, now forgiven and reconciled to God so that we can enjoy his presence now and forever. And that is why Paul on another occasion could say that I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. God's providence is at work in your life. So that yes, we can say by faith, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are indeed at work in our lives, even when we cannot see it, even when we begin to doubt it, that your providence is at work in our pain and suffering. Your providence is at work in our prominence when things are going well in our lives. And your providence is at work through your promise that those who believe in you shall never taste death, but will live with you forever. Not meaning that we won't die here, but spiritually, we will live forever. Thank you that you do in fact work all things together for good for those of us who love you and are called according to your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.